Good morning, everyone. I'm, I'm Richard Olson, and this is a live service from the UU, Fellowship, uh, UU Church of uh, Wausau, Wisconsin. I think it's being audio taped. Yeah, it is being audio taped, too. So. I've been a member here for almost 30 years. This is the first of our special summer services that are usually lay-led and, and tend to be a little more informal. They say that everyone has at least one good sermon in them. So it's a good time in the summer to volunteer to do one. So see Randy Jefferson here after the service and sign up. I assume there's still some openings. Yeah, okay, great. The service I'm leading today was originally meant as a podcast. And it would have worked fine, but I thought doing it in front of a live audience, I'd have to have some visuals rather than using our imagination. I'm not up on the latest technology, so uh, I'll try to razzle-dazzle you with my uh, obsolete PowerPoint. Uh, but, uh, so you may need to cut me some slack. We will not take a formal offering today, but there is a basket on the table out there if you are inclined to leave a donation, or you can go to our website and donate through there, too. So join me now as we light our chalice, well, as, as Donica and Lucy and Henry light the chalice. Please read with me the words in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this as a symbol of our faith as we gather together. So please join me as we sing, Wake Now My Senses. Um, we don't have the hymnals in here, but the words will be on the screen. So maybe it would be better if we stay seated. Whatever you're inclined to do.
Our two readings this morning uh, both come from ancient wise philosophers. The first is from Hippatha of Alexandria. She was one of the few female Hellenistic mathematicians and philosophers. Fables should be taught as fables, myths as myths, and miracles as poetic fancies. To teach superstitions as truth is a most terrible thing. The child mind accepts and believes them, and only through great pain and, perhaps tragedy, can he be, in after years, relieved of them. In fact, men will fight for a superstition quite as quickly as for a living truth, often more so, since a superstition is so intangible you cannot get at it to refute it. But truth is a point of view, and so it is changeable. The second reading comes from the Roman emperor and Stoic, Marcus Aurelius. Live a good life. If there are gods and they are just, then they will not care how devout you have been, but will welcome you based on the virtues you have lived by. If there are gods, but unjust, then why should you want to worship them? If there are no gods, then you will be gone, but you will have lived a noble life that will live on in the memories of your loved ones. So as I reconfigure myself here, you can take a look at this wonderful painting. Talia was the, the, one of the muses of the Greek muses of poetry and comedy and so on. Sorry, got ahead of myself. It was a historical setting that seems more than just vaguely familiar in the here and now. Anxiety and tension threatened a democracy that was becoming increasingly fragile. Some hoped to chip away at that fragile democracy to get what they wanted. The oligarchs sought more power. The free speech that the citizens enjoyed was in jeopardy. Criticism of the state was unpatriotic and considered corrupting young minds. Some were eager to maintain a strong relationship between religion and the state. The strength and the respect of the empire was waning. A prolonged war did not end well. Athens was at a crossroads. The recent loss to the Spartans after the Peloponnesian War, which started in 431 BCE and ended some 28 years later, was a blow to the Athenians, not only to the empire but to the people as well. Unlike the Athenians, who were proud of their democracy, their free speech, and their liberal theories of education, the Spartans were, as we might say, more Spartan. A more proscribed society, one that valued strength and endurance, military might, and a more rigid approach to educating the youth. After the loss to the Spartans, some Athenians, mostly from the educated, wealthy, and well-connected classes, 
begin to express their admiration for the Spartan way of life. Athens should emulate Sparta, they thought. The Athenians were weak, fussing too much over art, music, poetry, philosophy, ethics. They needed to get tough. But many Athenians felt otherwise. They were not willing to give up their freedom to criticize the state, a freedom the Spartans did not enjoy, for not only was it unpatriotic, but it was dangerous. Athens, the cradle of democracy, was being rocked, but not to the rhythm of a gentle lullaby. In 411, a coup attempted to install a government of, of oligarchs, but democracy, democracy was restored within the same years, but it was a shaky democracy. The situation became more precarious, more polarized, and in 399, when Socrates was prosecuted for impiety and corrupting Athenian youth, he was, only, he was only one of several others who were also facing such charges. Scholars tend to agree that there were likely some 500 male Athenians in what we would call the jury. The vote to convict Socrates was close, within a margin of about 30. Socrates was sentenced to death, which seemed excessive to some, but he had vexed many of his opponents with his skillful debating skills. They felt embarrassed, diminished, and they wanted revenge. Those trials were generally held at the Agora, the Athenian open marketplace where not only goods and services were exchanged, so were ideas. But sometimes ideas can be dangerous when you share them at large. Just ask Socrates. And in a minute, we just might hear some of those dangerous ideas. So now, I invite you to go back in time with me to the ancient Greek Agora. There'll be quite a few other groups at this event, so stay close to me. We must keep our distance from the Greeks, though, and we cannot intervene in any way. And by the way, we can see and hear the Greeks, but they can't see and hear us, which is a good thing our clothing alone would startle them. And no pictures, no phone calls, and no selfies. The Athenian sun can get hot, so thanks to my connections at the Agora, I was able to reserve a shady spot with a panoramic view. We only have the spot for a limited amount of time, as another group is booked in right after us. Danica is at the controls in the transporter room, so on the count of three, we need to say, Beam us back, Danica. Anna, Theo, Tria. Beam us back, Danica. Well, it looks like we all made it, so follow me. And by the way, the goats won't bother us if we don't bother them. Well, I see there are quite a few groups here already. Let's hope they stay as quiet as possible. Looks like there's even a group from England there. On the way over, Donica informed me that she has also arranged it 
So Greek philosophers over multiple generations will be here today. Now listen carefully as I try to pick, on the, pick up on the conversations. My microphone is on, and so Google Translate will be helping me with my rusty Greek. I will pass the conversations along to you, word for word, or maybe just the gist. So now everybody, quiet please. Well, well, if it isn't Pythagoras, no doubt Euclid is not far behind. I try to avoid them at the Agora. I still blame them for that D minus I got in high school geometry. Side, angle, side, angle, side, angle. It was all Greek to me. Sorry, Mr. Moan. Oh, he's not here today. I must confess, though, that during my life, I have a couple times used A squared plus B squared equals C squared. The problem with Pythagoras is that he never wrote anything down though he certainly drew stuff, numbers and stuff, he had some sort of a obsession with angles, especially right angles. But there's a great deal of writing about him. Apparently, he believed in observing religious rituals and leading a self-disciplined life. He also believed that the soul is immortal and that it reincarnates into other types of animals. Probably not our own choice, though, but if I did have a choice, I certainly wouldn't want to come back as something edible. But now that I think of it, everything is, including tarantulas. What's most interesting about Pythagoras, or at least as far as I'm concerned, is his interest in the universe, which he apparently was the first to call cosmos. He believed numbers and angles could help humans understand the universe. And as it turns out, he was right math and geometry are certainly an important part of our exploration of the universe. I know he has theories that bear his name, and I'm not sure if it's already been done, but shouldn't we at least name something cosmic after him? A moon, a star, a comet, a candy bar maybe? Oh, oh, look over there. It's Epicurus. He appears to be foraging, probably for in-season herbs, berries, and mushrooms. He's had me over for gourmet meals on occasion. One time I mentioned that I was happy that he had invited me. What a mistake. He launched into this big spiel about happiness. Fortunately for you, I can't remember most of it, but he did tell me that he thought people wanted to be as happy as possible in life because we fear death. I thought, well, yeah. Why not drink the best uzu, eat the best baklava, wear the best chitons? He replied, yes, yes, sometimes, but not all the time. And not only that, he went on to talk more about fears and desires and our quest for happiness and how that doesn't always lead to a virtuous, honorable, or satisfying life. And I like that part about satisfying life. Seems to me that Epicurus and the Buddha may have been on the same wavelength in that regard. But there's much more to Epicurus than all that. He also had theories about the physical world, about atoms and their movement, about matter, about gravity, and many other aspects of the laws of nature. Of course, they had no evidence of atoms or their movements at the time, but it certainly was prescient thinking. 
Once when I saw him at the Agora, I told him his name would go down in history, but not for his physical world theories. I told him his name would morph into the word Epicurean, which uh, meant devoted to the pursuit of sensual pleasures, especially with food and comfort. Then I told him there would even be a magazine and a website called Epicurious. He seemed a bit fuzzy about what I was saying, so I moved on, which we'll now do. Oh, and there he is, the man who is considered to be a giant in the development of Western, Western philosophy, Socrates. He usually attracts bigger crowds than that, and I, but I suppose other groups are saving the best for last. And notice the guard listening in. He's spying for the powers that be, the church and the state. Let's listen in. One of those people is asking Socrates a question. He wants to know what the wise and knowledgeable Socrates believes happiness is. I'm glad he made the distinction between wisdom and knowledge. Socrates has paused for effect, of course. Socrates is now saying that his wisdom is based on knowing that he knows nothing. They all look perplexed because he really didn't answer the question, but he goes on. I can't quite get it all, especially when he lowers his voice to sound pensive, but basically he's saying that happiness is not determined by the gods. It is not up to the gods. Well, I'd say he's on shaky granite or limestone, whatever he's standing on, besmirching the gods that one expects a, a mythical Zeus-guided uh, bolt of lightning. And there it is. Just a warning, though. Now Socrates is saying something about finding one's own happiness by gaining control over our desires and something about living in harmony with our soul. Or, wait a minute, I think maybe a better translation would be internal harmony. I like that, internal harmony. Socrates is now saying that we all desire to be happy and it is not a matter of relying on the external. Oops, uh, external things. What matters, he says, is how we use those external things to make us happy. The secret of happiness, you see, is not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. Now it's Socrates' turn to ask questions. What external things do we mortal humans desire? He is so Socratic with his questioning techniques. I can't hear all the answers that they are all talking at once, but I do hear the words power, fame, and the word money several times. What is money? What good is money? Socrates is now asking the group. How much do we need? How much happiness can it buy? He peppers them with more questions. It looks to me that his followers care not to answer, fearing their answers will be turned back around onto him. That's what he does, you know. They have already learned that it's sometimes better even not to answer than it is to ask. Money, Socrates is saying, is, not, is only good when it is used by good people to do good things. 
wise man, I'd say. I see most of you are nodding. Time to move on. Oh, oh, wait, I have one more thing. Recently, a Florida lawmaker who was ranting about cancel culture said, and I quote, if Socrates was out philosophizing in American society today, he would be canceled real quick. Well, duh, he was canceled. <laughs> and he was canceled with hemlock. I can imagine the depth of that lawmaker's philosophical understanding is something like, it is what it is. I bet his idea of fine art is dogs playing poker, or Elvis on velvet. As for gourmet dining, probably a chili dog. Okay, Richard, keep it moving. Oh, one more thing. Socrates could have fled, you know. Many thought he should. But he thought he would only meet the same fate elsewhere. And besides, he did not fear death. And not only that, he felt that it was his duty to follow through with his sentence. He did not want to violate his social contract with Athenian law and society. He did have strong feelings about a citizen's duty to their society. But I like that whole thing about social contracts. Okay, so let's look around. Oh, here are two biggies. That's Mr. Moderation on our right. Or at least that's what some call him around the Agora. I call him Airy, which he only allows a few of us to do, but we bonded as educators. You may remember that Aristotle made his mark mostly through his school called the Lyceum. But he also developed a system of education whereas, whereby teachers would travel around to students. He believed that education should not only provide knowledge, but should also nurture reasoning, questioning, and what it means to live an ethical life. His novel use of music, art, drama, and other non-traditional methods to achieve his goals would later be repopularized and called multiple intelligence. And the teachers here know that in education, every 20 years the wheel gets invented again and called something else. As for happiness, he believes that it's only one element of a virtuous life. Maybe we'll talk about that when we get back. Oh, and one more thing. I heard him talk about what he called the golden mean, which is the ground between gluttony and abstention, hence moderation. I did hear, though, that he was a real drag at parties. Fortunately, Epicurus excludes him from his Evites. Oh, yeah, and then that's Plato on the left, of course. Not surprising that they're hanging out together, as Plato was Aristotle's mentor. People around the Agora have learned to avoid the word cave around Plato, or he will go on forever. But you know what I heard? I heard that he stole that whole allegory of the cave thing from Socrates. But there's no way to prove that, since Socrates did not write anything down. Smart man. Modern users of social media might do well to follow his practices. It's a great allegory, though, if you've never read it. But you might also want to read Plato, not Prozac, by Lou Marinoff. The author advocates down-to-earth philosophical practices to get us through life rather than chemicals. 
sort of a prescription to, for philosophy, I, I would say. I think the book's in our church library if you need a fix. Let's move on. Oh, geez. Here he is with that lamp thing again. I hate to be cynical, but enough already. Wait a minute. Did I just say I hate to be cynical? You know, he sleeps on the streets. I suppose he has a goat skin bedding down there somewhere. He's also well known around the Agora with not having real good personal hygiene, especially if he smells like a goat. But let's be realistic. No one is going to ask him what's up with that lit lamp in the light of day. Everyone already knows the answer. Maybe someone will humor him, but I doubt it. But when you think of it, it really was a clever setup. A lit lamp by the light of day trying to find an honest man. My favorite story about Diogenes and I only heard it a couple years ago, is when Alexander the Great saw him staring at some human bones and asked him what he was doing. Diogenes replied, I'm searching for the bones of your father, but cannot distinguish them from those of a slave. I love it. What a zinger. I got to take him out for Musako one of these times. Well, wait a minute. This isn't right. Those two aren't Greeks. They're not supposed to be here. Oh, I get it. Ha, 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 Danica, good one. But let's not have no more surprises from the transporter room, please. It's hard to tell the two apart, but one is Rene Descartes, and the other is Spinoza, um, Baruch, Baruch Spinoza. They both seem equally morose. But now that I look a little closer, I, I'm quite sure Spinoza's the one on our right. They probably wouldn't be much fun at a party either. But Spinoza, Spinoza is someone free thinkers like most of us can warm up to. He believed that truth is not found in scripture, but instead how we interpret it. Of course, he did get expelled from the Jewish community in Amsterdam not to mention being shunned by his family. But if you're a humanist at heart, you might find a few doses of Spinoza congenial to your thinking. His ethical approach to virtue left out the supernatural elements so popular at the time. Well, I guess they're still popular now. I'm sure he would embrace our UU principles, especially the one about the search for truth and meaning and the interdependent web of life. Descartes was French, of course, and he's famous for that, I think, therefore I am bit. Quite tragic, though, his early demise. He was at a party at the time. The hostess saw his wine glass was empty, and she went and said, would you like some more wine? And he said, I think not, and poof, he disappeared. <laughs> but I wonder what happened to the wine glass. He should have had another glass of wine, you know? Well, I guess our time is almost up. We've got to get moving on. I was hoping to stop by Philomena's for her fabulous deep-fried feta cheese curds, but you can see the line is too long. Her stuffed grape leaves are a big hit, too.
I'm not sure if that bust in the center there is Demeter, who was the goddess of the harvest, or her daughter, Persephone. Great myth, that one about how Demeter springs her daughter out of the underworld after Hades gets her down there. Those ancient Greeks created a lot of myths, as did the Romans, the Hebrews, the Christians, the Aztecs. Well, you get the point. So let's go over and try Homer's House of Hellenic Libations. Oh, bummer. You can see by the sign that they're closed for a private party. Oh, this evening. The statue of the Greek god of wine, Dionysus, is a nice touch, though. It was also called Bacchus, where we get our word bacchanalia from. It would be fun to stick around and watch a bunch of philosophers loosen up at happy hour. But we must be off. I really didn't want to go there anyway. I hear Homer's wine is made from sour grapes and that he sells skunky beer. Okay, so now that's it. We got to go back. So on the count of three again, we say, Donica, Bima's home, but not the goats. She can be a little mischievous, that Donica. Okay, here we go. Anna, Theo, Tria. Bima's home, Donica, but not the goats. Well, we'll have to do this again sometime. But we must wonder why we have to wander back in time to dwell amongst great philosophers. Where have all the philosophers gone? In our culture today and in our education system, we tend to value knowledge, expertise, retention of facts and information, and the mastery of practical applications, and so on, rather than developing uh, reasoning, deduction, inference, and other skills that cannot be measured on a Scantron. Not that we don't need those more miserable, miserable skills to make a living. After all, roaming around our seasonal farmer's market and engaging others in philosophical dialogue will not earn you a living. You might garner a few strange looks or notice people moving away from you. But if you do try it, leave your Coleman lantern at home. It's already been done. I believe that meaning and truth are rarely settled issues in life, and that philosophy, even in small, down-to-earth doses, is a discipline we can use throughout our lives. Yes, philosophy can be, and often is, esoteric. One needs to access it repeatedly to get one's head around it, and then sometimes that's still not enough. I believe that a virtuous, satisfying, and happy life is not bestowed upon me by divine powers or supernatural elements. It's something I need to achieve on my own and in the community with others. I believe we can find meaning and wisdom in fables and myths, and in some ways, maybe even in alleged miracles. But taking fables, myth, and miracles to be literally true, or allowing others to interpret them for me, will, only, will not lead me to an examined life. As Socrates once said, 
the unexamined life is not worth living. My closing words, our closing words, come from Pericles. I, I love it how some of these ancient Greek philosophers only had one name. It's kind of like nowadays Cher and Ellen and Beyonce or something. Of course, that's like a different category, I guess. But, uh, I'd like to have us recite these words together. What you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. Now, uh, unless you want to dance the shiitake, a dance created by the composer of Zorba the Greek, or you just feel like jigging about, please remain seated for the postlude. And a special shout out to Danica in the transporter room. And if you want to do the dance, this is what it looks like.